Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. My name is Alan, and what is your name? My name is Gareth. Oh, Gareth, beautiful British name. What do you do for a living, Squire? <laughs> I'm a podcast host. You're a podcast host. Ah, what has this country come to? Is your father proud of you? He's never said so, has he? And that was my impression of Al Murray, the pub landlord, because today we are covering Time, Gentlemen, Please, in which he doesn't get much of a chance to interact with the front row of the audience. Gareth, I know that you are something of a fan of the the pub landlord, and I am as well. Yeah. So we've come to Time, Gentlemen, Please, which is by far the least known sitcom we've done in this series, and the most modern. I think it's worth worth mentioning this, because we've obviously done some, we've done Steptoe and some, we've done Rising Down, we've done some real classics. We wanted to bring it a bit more up to date, although I was quite surprised to find that this is nearly 20 years old. But that's still that's <laughs> yeah. still more up to date compared to Step That's as close as we're going to get to modern day. <laughs> I don't think even Al Murray's mum would describe this as a classic sitcom. <laughs> but it is certainly an interesting historical artefact. And after all, this is the British Sitcom History Podcast. And so I think it'll be interesting to talk about this and put it into context. And that context really is the character of the pub landlord created by Al Murray. I, I, you, I guess you can tell me a little bit more about Al Murray in a second, but let me give you my, my history with Al Murray. I was a big fan of this character, and I'm thinking back to the 90s. He was a popular character on TV, and he used to tour live with the character. And I, I went to see Al Murray, the pub landlord. Oh, I don't know, four or five times I've seen him live. And as yeah. your impression implied there at the start, he did a very good stage show, very good live, very good at work in the crowd. Had this interesting material, which was very 1990s of, okay, we're post-alternative comedy. Now we're going to be racist and sexist, but we're going to do it ironically. And you're allowed to laugh <laughs> at it. And yeah. for the time it worked, it worked. And you sort of felt a little bit superior. It's a bit, bit of a fine line to tread though, isn't you it? You <laughs> felt a little bit superior because he was making all these historical allusions and he was very obviously quite erudite and intelligent. And so it was all right to laugh at his mother-in-law jokes and uh, uh, laugh at the French with him. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to talk about how that ironic bigotry has aged because there was very much <laughs> a trend for that. But then also, obviously, this is a sitcom history podcast. So we want to talk about how it translates into that situational yeah. context. So I, I never saw Al Murray live. You were in your prime when he oh, was uh, touring London, I imagine, as well, when you lived there. I was a bit younger, but I had uh, watched all the, you know, his stand-up material that had been out on DVD or whatever. I actually went back and watched a bit of it. Do you mean, do you mean the stuff he did before The Pub Landlord? Well, no, that's what I was going to say. I realised that the first DVD he put out, the first sort of recorded thing of him... Mm. It's 2002, which is after Time, Gentleman, Please, which which I wasn't expecting. And there's so much material in there that is in Time, Gentleman, Please. Obviously, he'd been doing that material for years. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So I, I left London in 2002. So when I say I saw him four or five times, it would have been before then. And yeah, there was lots of times watching these episodes of Time, Gentleman, Please, where I recognised the material. So I guess he got yeah. several years of stage show material. He would talk to the audience and, and, and you know mock their occupation and take the pints off the women because it's a glass of fruit based drink for the ladies and it had the the impression of being improvised but clearly he had done this character for hundreds and hundreds of hours and he got material there he got a character really well defined and so he was able to put that into the script well give me a bit of background on Al Murray then so so pre-pub landlord I know he was a, a you know he was a comedian on the circuit what can you tell me about him 
Well, you know, Al Murray and Richard Herring, the other writer of the show, mm -hmm. your classic Oxbridge toffs. <laughs> um, they are uh, perhaps not uh, quite falling into the stereotypes you'd like them to, but they are. They both went to Oxford. Al Murray went to a public boarding school mm -hmm. when he was a child. You know, it's kind of this slightly classic, but even by the late 80s when they went, they were at Oxford, now out of date. Yeah. You know, it's not Monty Python anymore. It's Steve Coogan at Manchester. And <laughs> I've heard Richard Herring talk about this, his first Edinburgh festival he went up there as part of the the, the university comedy group and it felt mm. like an outsider and tells a story yeah. of how all the alternative comedians looked down their noses at them. there was this inverted snobbery if you compare that to say if it had been 10 years earlier i think it probably was a different experience in the early 90s yeah, in the late 80s, and, and I heard uh, one interview, Al Murray was saying the first time he met Leon Herring, Stuart Lee and Richard Herring, mm. they'd just been to Edinburgh for the first time in 88, probably, yeah. and they'd just come back and they had their own little sketch group, yeah. and they were direct from Edinburgh, so it was like, oh my God, they've been to Edinburgh, they're so mm. cool. <laughs> and uh, and that's, how, that's where they first met. Other people that were knocking about around that time, Rebecca Front. Yeah who, of course, is in Time Gentleman Please, as well as several other things that Richard Herring worked on. Armando Iannucci had just kind of come through that yeah. that whole thing as well, which and they worked with him. So, obviously, it was still a hotbed of comic talent, even though it wasn't really that cool anymore. Al Murray, he linked up with Harry Hill. Yes. That was kind of his first comedy connection. So he was gigging, doing stand-up, and his act back in the early 90s was sound effects. Now, I remember this, Alan. So, <laughs> so in the late 80s, there were a host of comedy TV shows, the sort of alternative comedy version of variety shows, where you'd have, you know, Adrian Edmondson and Rick Mayall throwing themselves around, and you'd have Ben yeah. Elton and, and people like that. Harry Enfield came through on those programmes. Yeah, I, I kind of associate early Al Murray with that type of show and I seem to recall he did a he did, he, I'm not going to try and do it he did the sound effect of a car boot opening and closing and he did lots of different that was his classic bit yeah yeah, yeah he did lots of different <laughs> like rifle noises and gun noises and things yeah I found a clip of him on The Word in 1991 The Word now that's exactly the sort of show I'm referring to yeah, yeah. <laughs> this one's a little large I have to keep it in the boot of my car <laughs> Yeah, that's a typical kind of uh, idea of what he was doing at the time. And, you know, he managed to stretch it out to 15, 20 minutes. And <laughs> so he was doing all right. But yeah, teamed up with Harry Hill. And apparently he, he worked on Weekending. Do you know Weekending back from that's, the early that's, 90s? That's a radio show. It was a radio sketch show, topical sketch. Yeah, because I, I know that Leon Herring worked on this as well. And, and you, people could contribute. Mm -hmm. So got, it was like piecework. They'd get paid by the sketch, right? They had an uncommissioned writer's room. Where everyone Anyone could just turn up, throw ideas around, you write stuff. And if someone likes it, they go, okay, go and write that. You go over to the typewriter in the corner, you bash it out. Mm. And then if it gets used, you get 20 quid or whatever. Yeah. And so they would go there every day or however, when it, whenever it was done and, and do that. Lee and Herring actually got put on some sort of salary for it. Mm -hmm. They were actually getting sort of paid properly, although they hated it and eventually quit. They were doing weekending and Al Murray went there and he met Harry Hill there mm. just as another writer. They got on, whatever. So he ended up just working with Harry Hill and being something of a sidekick to him, playing his big brother, Alan. How do balloons work? One minute they're small, the next minute they're big. And when you open them up, they're empty. 
my big brother Alan. I'm sure you remember Harry Hill in I the nineties and Al Murray with a. Well, Harry Hill's an interesting comedian because he kind of went mainstream and he had that ITV Harry Hill's TV burp, which is funny, but is very broad, very mainstream. But he was very definitely mm. part of the alternative comedy movement in the late eighties, early nineties, oh, yeah. before he kind of went the ITV route. I watched a few clips from the Harry Hill show, which must have been I don't know ninety six, ninety seven, maybe something like that, and. Uh, I was specifically looking for bits with Al Murray in, but I was just watching some bits and pieces. And let me give you some advice. Don't go back and watch it. It does not. <laughs> like, I remember it as being kind of anarchic, but hilarious. It was just total nonsense. <laughs> and it was, uh, I don't know. It just doesn't feel like it's aged well. <laughs> Maybe I've changed. Though. Well, it was, you know, if you think about that time, it was just after Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer, Vic Reeves' Big Night Out. Yeah, there, w- there was definitely room for that kind of surrealism. But how long did Al Murray work with him then? When did when did that did he stop working well, with him when years. the pub landlord was born? Well, the pub landlord was born through that work. Basically, ah. where the pub landlord comes from was they were doing a show. I think this was in Edinburgh. They were doing some sort of general kind of variety show that centered around kind of Harry Hill and what he did. Mm. And so Al Murray, amongst other things, was playing the compare. He was going to be the person helping shift between one sketch to the next or whatever. Yeah. And he'd, he'd come up with this character to do it and it wasn't working. And so just off the cuff, he said, what about if we pretend the compare hasn't turned up? So the, the guy who was running the pub, the landlord, has had to step in and do it. And so he just went up and did it. Like, no, didn't so have any a, preparation for like... improvised idea turned into a character he's still doing. Yeah. <laughs> Great. And he, and he says that's why the character's got no name and no like proper backstory or anything because I just, it was just like, I'll just do a sort of typical idiotic overconfident pub landlord. <laughs> and he sort of pretty much seems to suggest that he kind of went up there and did it and it was like a complete thing. It was like, oh, this works. I'm going to keep doing this. And obviously yeah. it must have developed some degree since then. But uh, yeah, that, that was it. The pub landlord was born and it has been basically been his career for 25 years now. <laughs> well, well, I think he's. I, I think that's a little unfair. I'm. I'm a fan of Al Murray. Uh, you know, <laughs> since those early days, I do like him. And you know, he he presents magazine shows on Radio Five Live now. You know, he's not. He's not. He's got more strings to his bow. But he yeah, is still he doing does, the character. Yeah, he does a lot. Of he is still doing yeah. it. Well, I <laughs> just obviously I've been searching stuff on YouTube and all that. So I get I end up getting recommendations for sure. for things in Al Murray. And one I didn't even watch this, but it was posted by the Tank Museum as well as the YouTube channel. And it was top five tanks with Al Murray. <laughs> and it was like him just walking around the tank museum. Well, he's like, genuinely a history enough, buff, but... <laughs> which, which is interesting. He has a history podcast, actually, which I've listened to. But that that definitely comes through in the character. There's a really yeah. good sketch that he does, which is crowd work, where he, he asks, name a country that, and I'll tell you how England defeated them. And he's got an answer for everything. <laughs> you know, so someone, yeah. someone smart-ass shouts, Uganda. And he's like, oh yeah, Uganda used to belong to Germany, used to be a colony of Germany. We've been them in 1918. Haven't heard from them since. That counts as a win. Lovely. (laughs) There's real historical knowledge underneath it. And it very occasionally Mm. will go off on this rant, which is erudite and factually accurate. And you're like, oh my God, what's happening here? But he then (laughs) brings it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seen them off. Lovely. And it works really well, but he wears that knowledge and he wears that learning very lightly. And he just stitches it into the character very neatly when it's needed. And it does help to lend that knowing sense of satire, that level of irony. Well, that's, that go, okay, that's what stops it from being just yeah. bigoted. 
Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, otherwise, what is the difference between being a bigot and pretending to be a bigot? Quite. You've got to undercut it in some way. You've got to There's go, got to be a yes, wink, hasn't look, there? There's I'm got to be a nod joke. to camera, metaphorically, if not literally. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Uh, the Pub Landlord was officially created in 1994, I believe. And, you know, then he, he started running it as a, as a proper act. And he won the Perrier Award in 1999. Yeah. I think he'd been nominated a, a couple of times before that as well. But, yeah, the Perrier Award, which... I guess anyone who doesn't know, it's it's the award in Edinburgh, which is basically best stand-up this year. And it is quite a prestigious award mm-hmm. that a lot of people, well, I think Steve Coogan won so it. huge Sean names have won, won it. Perrier. Yeah, especially back in the day, in the 90s, 80s and 90s, uh, the Edinburgh Fringe was a little bit less crowded. <laughs> well, like, yeah. everyone's there now, you know, everyone and their mum's there. Yeah, he won the Perry Award in 1999, and apparently... So in terms of the genesis of Time Gentlemen, Please, he'd been working on, uh, can I convert this into a sitcom and, and like trying to put something together. And Richard Herring was helping him in terms of being a script editor. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of looking at the material and all that. The day before he won the Perrier Award, so obviously he'd already been nominated and everything, Sky gave them, well, gave him a 13-episode deal. They won the Perry Award, and then apparently immediately after they won the Perry Award, loads of other people um, <laughs> were like, oh, why didn't you give it to us? And he's like, I've been shopping this around for a year, so don't yeah. say <laughs> you didn't have your chance. But that's interesting because the fact that it was on Sky was a big mm-hmm. deal back then. I, I, you can maybe correct me here, but I think it was Sky's first sitcom. Because in 1999, or Sky didn't have, they had the football. They were that yeah. you, you would pay for Sky if you wanted to watch the football. And they had movies as well. But they didn't really make a lot of original productions. And so mm. Time Gentleman Please was quite a big thing for them, for, for, the, for the company, for the production company. But unfortunately, yeah. it really meant no one saw it. So I didn't have Sky at the time <laughs> because, uh, you know, I didn't watch the football. I was an Al Murray fan, as we have established. But I didn't see this when it went out because I just couldn't watch it. I think I did. This is probably a good time. Let's just go into a little bit of history of digital television because this really was the the, the crux point where your normal kind of terrestrial channels started to get divide that marketplace started to get much more divided mm-hmm. and the framework of what we know as television really changed obviously it had already started with satellite television and stuff like that but i mean it's digital television so when digital television was coming in to replace analog it just means you can have a lot more channels on the bandwidth or yes. whatever the phrasing should be but there's more space there you got more channels you can do more stuff so this this started officially in like 1998 they started rolling out this thing and there was this service called on digital which was a subscription service mm-hmm. They really pushed it. They had all these channels. So you get all your normal channels for free, but then you would have Sky channels and things like that. You would pay for them, the Sky Sports and all that. And Sky Digital had also launched. So Sky Digital had their own thing and they were doing that. All of a sudden, the, the whole marketplace of how television works is changing. There was this period of a few years where nobody really knew what was going on and they're just throwing money at the wall, trying to figure out what's going to happen. Yeah. On digital as a service didn't do that well. It was not getting the subscribers that it needed to cover its costs. It made these huge deals to get the rights to football that were totally overinflated and there was no chance they were ever going to make the money back. It was. Hang on, is this you're talking about on digital? Is this not ITV digital when they went bust, didn't they? Or is that a separate? It rebranded to ITV digital okay. a couple of years in in the hope that people would go oh itv i've heard of that yes. uh, that's fine 
that was a rebranding after they were already getting a bit desperate. Yeah. But a, one of the channels that it carried that you wouldn't have if you just had an old telly was Sky One, which they kind of leased from Sky Digital. Of right. course, Sky Digital had it as well. And just to give you some idea of numbers, I found this. So in January 2001, which is about the time this show was going out, ITV Digital had 1 million subscribers. Mm-hmm. So that's 1 million boxes. Yeah. So theoretically, 1 million houses, you know. And Sky Digital had 5.7 million. Right. So obviously Sky Digital were winning that race. But also... That's what ten percent yeah. of it's the small, population. It's a small maybe small potential got audience, that, yeah. much less actual audience. And I, I also looked at this. The highest ever viewing figures that Sky One has had as a channel mm. was in two thousand, and it was an episode of Friends. Okay, and it had an audience of two point eight six million. Wow, that's the best ever. So let's bear in mind, Time Gentlemen, please, was not a huge hit. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, well, when you compare that to we've talked about Steptoe and getting twenty three million sure. viewers, it's it's. It's just not the same. The comparison is not just about numbers. When we talked about Steptoe, we talked about how it had entered the culture. Like only yeah. Fools and Horses. Whether you watched it or not, you know those characters, you know the tropes, you recognise that three-wheeler van. Time Gentleman, please, isn't... I'm not saying it's not as good as those things. I mean, it's not. But what I'm saying is it's just it's just not something that people would know about. Yeah, just <laughs> it just passed by without anyone noticing. Yeah, and, but, but that's maybe a sign of the times and perhaps something that as we review sitcoms from the last 20 years, we'll see more of. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, the whole, like we say, the, the whole uh, landscape of the industry has changed in these 20 years but interestingly at the time in the early 2000s i was a teenager i was still living with my parents and i had a digital box in a sort of rare occasion for me of being at a sort of technological crest of the wave (laughs) i think the reason for that was you know the box itself was relatively cheap but to get the subscription services the actual paid channels you had to get a card and you had to pay for that yeah they wanted you to have the box so that you could sell the football to you yeah, and you could watch normal free channels, BBC One, mm-hmm. whatever, on on that box. So yeah. then you go, well, oh, you like football, don't you? You got a card, and that, and then you put the card in, and that card was like, yeah. oh, these are the channels you're allowed to use. And my dad had some sort of connection where he got a dodgy card that was pirated. I got everything for free. That is such an early 2000s grift. Everybody knew someone <laughs> who, who had one of those. They knew someone yeah. who, who could get you a, a digital card. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I claim that I was young enough to not know any any better. So. It's my dad who's the immoral. So you're just completely throwing <laughs> dad under the bus. Yeah, yeah, that'll do. Uh, but yeah, that was, you know, a big part as to why ITV Digital collapsed because there was so much piracy going on. They weren't even getting the money from people they, that wanted it. And, and they, they nearly took they nearly took the Football League down with them, didn't they? When ITV Digital went yeah. bust, all those Football League clubs that had been promised all this money and, and gone and spent it, that, there were several it, yeah. football clubs that nearly went out of business. And that's your fault, Alan. Yeah, that's, that's my dad's fault. <laughs> yeah, as a <laughs> so at that time i remember having all these channels i remember watching time gentlemen please at the time and i knew enough about who al murray was to be aware of it and i also remember at the time watching Badil syndrome yeah which was a david Badil led sitcom which i don't remember much about i don't think i've ever seen it i've heard of it and i might have seen the odd clip here but i, I don't i don't remember it i remember it being pretty weak but that was yeah what you were saying earlier that was their first kind of attempts at making some original programming at least sitcom wise because yeah. yeah they were doing they, they were showing they were like buying friends, friends from america sitcoms. yeah there was a couple of sort of sci-fi sitcoms i think one that rob grant wrote as in rob grant from red dwarf but none of them did well none of them were successes and i don't know what what they needed it to be for it to be a success. I don't know what their kind of target was. They've got six million people watching. How many of how many millions do you need for it to be a success? What's yeah, it, exactly. You know, it was still past most people by, wouldn't it? 
Yeah, so that is kind of a little bit of putting it in its place. But it does seem like there was a bit of an attitude at that time, like, let's create something. Here's a load of money. Just give us something. Look, this is an established character. It's going to be great. Yeah. And I think they were just sort of in the right place at the right time to, to get something off the ground. So here we are. Time Gentlemen, please. They got a commission for 13 episodes, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a bit more than you would get at the BBC. A bit more of an American-style season. But this is this is the interesting thing, because, you know, the idea was it would be like Friends, it would be like Frasier, the other things that they were buying in from America, and they would make it a season rather than a series of six. But they yeah. weren't prepared to throw the money at it. They weren't prepared to employ a writer's room. They basically just sat Richard Herring in a room on his own. Isn't that right? That's it. Yeah, they weren't writers. It was... Predominantly, Richard Herring wrote the scripts. Uh, Obviously, a lot of it is derived from Al Murray's stand-up material, so he's credited Mm. as a writer on all of them. And I do think they they sat down and wrote together sometimes as well. Stuart Lee is credited as a script editor on the series and also is actually credited as a writer on a few episodes. I think here uh, Richard Herring said there were two episodes in the first series that Stuart wrote the first draft of, did the kind of the the, the grunt work and then yeah. uh, send it to him. But all the others, it's basically Richard Herring and Al Murray's character work. As we get as we get into the, the episode that we're going to discuss and others, when you say they wrote it together, let's call them Herring and Murray, there was very much a Lennon McCartney feel to it. I was picking out Al Murray material and I was picking out mm. Richard Herring lines and you could you could hear one voice, well, literally in Al Murray's case, but you could hear the other characters. Yeah, I can hear Richard Herring saying that. And, and so it made for this kind of uncomfortable two things being jammed together. <laughs> I, look, yeah. I'm a fan of Al Murray's material. I would yeah. go and see him again right now. But then trying to cram it into a narrative sitcom just it jarred several times. I, I agree. It's, it, basically, any anything the pub landlord is doing is Al Murray's material. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and one of the other characters, characters is interacting him just like the woman in the front row. Yeah, exactly. And that could work. You just have to find that balance of, you know, the pub landlord stood at the bar pontificating to all the regulars. Mm. That's kind of the character it's based on. Sure. So that's fine. Like, he can do that. But there is a bit of a line where you need to go, okay, this isn't just a guy doing stand-up material. It has to be a sitcom for what it's worth i think time gentlemen please is all right i don't like if, I, if we're going to sort of like put my general view on okay it's not a great sitcom it's definitely a lot better than it kind of history remembers it as right i think it's a good vehicle for that al murray material and i think there are some really nice sitcomy concepts that get thrown in there there's some of the supporting characters i really like and it definitely has some looser sloppier moments yeah. <laughs> But just as a general thing, I've heard them, well, Richard Herring say specifically that they created this sitcom, the idea they wanted to do, as a reaction to what was becoming more and more popular at the time, which was kind of real comedy, reality comedy, such as The Office. Obviously, The Office had just been a big hit right before. Right. So it was a deliberate response to that. Let's make like a 70s style sitcom, but put swearing in it like that. That was the conceit. And and it has that feel. I think yeah. it does. But yeah. I don't know necessarily if that's a good thing because just because they wanted to do it doesn't mean it was right. Hmm. <laughs> well, is it, okay, so it's interesting. So my baggage here, as I just pontificated that I like the pub landlord character and I don't feel that he is comfortably crammed into this situation. So yeah, I don't like yeah. it as much as you just described. 
But if you were coming to this without that affection for the character, would would it fit better into the situation? Mm. Maybe it would. Maybe maybe my my bias because I've seen that character on stage is that oh he's out of place here, <laughs> even though he's mm. by definition in place. He's the pub landlord. <laughs> but, but you take my point. Yeah, I would say this is a general point I was going to make. The episode I've picked for us to look at sort of specifically is is episode six of series one, and I picked that one because. I thought it was the best written episode. I think just in terms of the structure it has, Mm -hmm. the way the things weave together and the handling of the characters, I think it's one of the stronger episodes. And this is something that I would say really falls apart in the second series. Yeah. Just so, again, just to give a bit more background, the original series was commissioned for 13 episodes. And while it was being made and while it was going out, they suddenly decided they wanted nine more. Yeah. Exactly why, I don't know. It's not like it was a huge success and they were, oh, there, make us some more. I guess they had a gap to fill or whatever. Yeah. And Richard Herring had to scramble to write nine new episodes Mm. in essentially about nine or ten weeks. He was just doing them week to week. Mm. We'll talk about this later when we get into Richard Herring, but, you know, it really was very trying for him. No help from Al Murray because he's busy filming and rehearsing because he's in the show. And so he is really doing it all himself. And I think it's remarkable that when you watch those later nine episodes, there isn't a huge drop off in equality. I think it is pretty consistent for that first series. But there's a few, you start to see the shortcuts, you start to see the, the corners being shaved off. But I think it gets away with it. In the second series, which I've heard Richard Harry saying a couple of times, oh, I had much more time to deal with that, much more preparation. I'm, I'm happier with that series. I think it's better. I think it is far, far worse. That second series is so much sloppier. It's much looser. It loses a lot of the characters. It feels like everyone's disengaging with it. And I find that very interesting that Richard Herring thinks it's better. And I wonder if that is entirely founded on he has better memories of it because he was less Uh, stressed at the time and he was just generally in a better place as opposed to he's watched them back and objectively thought they're better. Well, it's impossible to be objective, isn't it, when you've written the damn thing? Well, yeah. (laughs) So that's sort of an interesting thing. And I I will come into that a little bit later. Well, yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about Richard Herring in the second half of the podcast. But let's talk about the episode. So it's season one, episode six. Date with density. And before we get into the episode, we always in these in our episodes we always talk about the theme music. And there isn't any. Mm. Why not? There isn't any at all. There is there at the end of the thing, there is a little bit over the credits like which is a which is a tune I associate with Al Murray. Yes. Because he plays at his live events. But I realise that I've only ever seen that after the sitcom, so I don't know if it was made for the sitcom or not. Yeah, I'm not sure either. But it is interesting. You get a title card, time gentlemen, please. You get an exterior shot of the pub. You get a hugely Mm. amusing sign in the window of the pub, which is different every week. Then you get the episode title and we're in. And that's all done over silence. It is, yeah. It's a peculiar choice. Uh, Yeah, it is. I don't think it's necessarily a bad choice, though. It kind of sets up this mundane nature of this pub in the middle of just a crappy street. There's just traffic going by. But it doesn't really fit the tone of the show. It is the sort of opening you would get to The Office or something like that's just very downbeat. Uh, So, yeah, it is an odd choice. Was it because they didn't want to spend money on paying someone to create music? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) So, yeah, and as you say, there are a lot of repeated jokes or repeated setups, as in there's a sign, a handwritten cardboard sign on the window, which usually says no foreigners or no men with long hair or women with short hair. No Belgians. Yes, always spelt wrong with an apostrophe somewhere where there shouldn't be one. There's always a joke on the blackboard next to the dartboard. The food, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's always a different sort of food thing. And that's fine. I like those little details. I think that's mm-hmm. nice. But over and above that, so many repeated gags and 
perhaps not quite catchphrases, but repeated lines, which is an element of Al Murray's yeah. stand-up. Well, now that's interesting, Alan, because I'm going to presume that you watched the whole damn thing, right? The whole both series. Yeah, yeah. So I've watched whoa, five episodes in the last two weeks, including this one. And yes, there were repeated lines, repeated tropes, pub landlord, you know, catchphrases, if you will. And immediately the first time I heard those, they were familiar to me because, again, you know, I know the character. But if you were coming to this without knowing the character, then, you know... <laughs> this goes far beyond that. And I, I, the, the thing is, it never quite falls into catchphrase territory because there's no kind of build-up to it. Or maybe it's just because they're so prevalent, it's just part of the language of this world. And Give me an example. Okay, I'll, I made a list of the ones that are in <laughs> this uh, episode. So, for example... Uh, go, so talking about how you know his wife left him a year ago he hasn't had sex for a year yeah oh, it's been a year now nearly 12 months now <laughs> and then in the second series it's nearly two years <laughs> and he's just as he kind of shakes out his wrist <laughs> and then other little things so for example Uncle Barry who turns up in regular episodes his catchphrase is you're doing fine you're doing fine with two thumbs up in a very yeah. odd way Phil Daniels character whenever he gets food he goes tuck into that uh, Every week he's been one. barred for doing something to Gary the dog. That's a repeated joke, and I, I like, and I think that's quite a nice repeated joke because the punchline's different every time. Yeah, okay. it's like the sign in the window. It's fine to have a repeated joke. Did I see the distinction you're making? Yeah. Other things. So yeah, another another catchphrase for Terry. He says slowly, slowly, catchy monkey. Whenever he's trying to seduce a woman. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's another one where the professor will make some reference to sci-fi or Doctor Who, and they all go, "Oh, grow up." That's a repeated line. Yeah. That's just ones that appear in this episode that I was making. But notes you on. remember what I said earlier about you can see the Al Murray material and the Richard Herring material. Yes. Those repetitive in-jokes, that feels very Richard Herring to me. Oh, man. I was watching, just as part of my research and generally looking at stuff, watching a few clips from Fist of Fun mm-hmm. and uh, This Morning, Richard, Not Judy. Yep. And it's watching a clip and it's like, that's a line from Time Gentleman, Please. I just watched an episode with that line in it. Yep. Whereas like there was a sketch, this old man in Fist of Fun, and this old man goes, I didn't fight in World War Two, admittedly. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic Harry. The old man in the pub does that line. Yeah. There was another line where Richard Herring, who's playing a teacher character in This Morning with not Richard Not Judy, a pathetic teacher, and, and at the end of his lines, in a sort of nervous way, he just sort of goes, as they say, etc. <laughs> in Time, Gentlemen, Please, Graham Fellows comes in for a couple of episodes yeah. as a character and has that odd vocal mannerism. And that's just a two things from the four sketches that I watched. And mm-hmm. there is so many repeated lines. And I see it in a lot of... Because I've watched and listened to loads of Richard Herring stuff. He repeats things over and over again. But I want to give him credit. It doesn't feel like, oh, I've got no new ideas. I just need to use yeah. it. It just feels like, oh, that's a nice little... Th- I'm going to seed that in. I'm going like, to yes. connect it back to something I did 20 years ago. So another fan. That's like still it. funny. It's like having a, a, a golf club that you, you know, you're going to use that same club again for this shot because it worked last time and it's and it yes. hits the shot again you know it's i i agree with you I, I know exactly what you're saying there is definitely repetition i have a lot of affection for richard herring and i think he makes it work you know that's kind of his mm. shtick yeah so let's go through this episode what i think we should do is go through it chronologically but perhaps branch mm. off and talk about the different characters as, as we're introduced to them mm. Well, actually, the the way the episode opens is really nice because, like, the first six lines are six different characters. It's like Steve walks in, he says something to Terry, Terry responds, the old man says something, the professor chips in, Janet walks in, she says something. Yeah. Bit of back and forth, then the gov comes in. And 
that's a lovely setup. That's just a great opener. All the characters speak. We know they're there. We're doing them. They've done their line. And then they, they carry on with it. Nice writing. I like that. We So we start with uh, Steve's turning up the heating and the gov isn't there. Bit of back and forth. Basically, it turns out they've come up with this plan to turn the heating up to make them all drink more. Do you know what the plan was called? It was called <laughs> Operation Make the Punters Drink More by Gradually Turning Up the Thermostat Without Them Noticing. <laughs> That's classic Richard Herring writing. <laughs> yes it is it's a, it's a surprise it didn't turn it into an acronym but apart from that <laughs> yeah, classic yeah. Richard Herring uh, so this is having some unintended consequences and that Janet is getting extremely horny uh, because of the heat yeah. I mean we, we don't really need to explain that in any kind of real way it's, it's it just matter. it works on a sitcom level that's fine and then our second plot which is set up uh, pretty much immediately as well the Gov is in a good mood because he's got a date with the bird from the till on the cash and carry yeah. Those are our two plot lines. And really nicely and somewhat unusually, dare I say, they weave together and complement each other really nicely mm-hmm. because the the turning up the heat thing and the lust, Janet's lust, it's all it's all playing alongside the gov's lust. He just yeah. wants to break his twelve month duck. <laughs> and then if I dare just rush to the end, the yeah. metaphor of the boiler exploding and <laughs> the the magma build up, uh, you know, it's magma. I mean, it's it's not subtle, is it? <laughs> it's not. No, it's not. But it works. It works. But it works. And these things actually tie together. And then you've got this whole bit with Steve, who has run off from Janet and is hiding up the chimney, but then he ends up interacting with the Gov. And mm-hmm. the things, not just that the two subplots work together kind of in alignment, they actually cross over and, and, and touch each other. And that's why, I, basically, I picked this one. I think it's the best written episode. Yeah. And not to say that the other episodes don't have that. It's just some of them don't have it going on at all but some of them it's just a lot looser or it just has kind of one major plot line especially when we get into those later episodes that he Mm. was writing in much more of a rush it's like okay get me a basic plot line and i'll follow it through yeah having the time to kind of have different ideas and weave them together is just not going to happen yeah so yeah but in terms of the episode specifically it starts out a nice bit where and this is what i think the the show should be the pub landlord the other men the regulars are sort of crowded around him and they're talking about women they're talking about terry's advice on how to get women yeah it's a nice little comedy bit and then janet is pops up with like you don't know anything about women you're stupid and and that conflict that works mm-hmm. really nicely well let's talk about some of those characters then so yeah. i suppose we could talk about janet first so she's the bar mm. we should explain she's australian as terry says from the yes. southern hemorrhoid um yes which you know the, the australians as, as al Murray says are genetically engineered for bar work which it's instinct he's great instinct. great material instinct <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah it's, the joke in this is that she's pawny that's it really and but but they're all absolutely terrified of her yeah well in overall in the series she comes in and she is this strong confident sexually domineering woman which is obviously to the gov is a, is a anathema he's, he's, he's terrified <laughs> Exploded all over his face. Hey, that reminds me of my last boyfriend. <laughs> what does she mean? I've absolutely no idea. Look at you, you're all fingers and thumbs. Hey, you sound like my ideal man. <laughs> what am I like? Quite unpleasant if you want an honest opinion. <laughs> Yeah, so the point is that they're all all of these desperate men are desperate for some female affection and sex, but but they they're absolutely terrified of her. <laughs> they would never go anywhere near Janet. But I did write down Janet's still horny. Do you think men wrote this? <laughs> so, <laughs> 
even in 2000, I, I think this is a little unenlightened. <laughs> well, that her character is generally very sexually domineering like that and is always going on about how she wants some. Yeah, but she's always going on about how she wants some in the way that Richard Herring imagines he would like a woman to. <laughs> I don't think I don't think any women talk like that to a gang of men. <laughs> I think it gets away with it because she's in the position of power there, if you know what I mean. She's yeah. kind of in control of that situation. Oh, it doesn't feel exploitative. It just feels unrealistic. Yeah. She's always like that. But in this episode, obviously, for the comic purposes, it's kind of really ramped up. Yeah. So this, this episode isn't a particularly good example of typical Janet, which is a character that I really like. Mm. Specifically, I think it's Julia Sawala that makes it. Julia Sawala just coincidentally was in a relationship with Richard Herring at the time. Now, I know this, but was that were they in a relationship <laughs> before the casting or did it come about during the show? I haven't really found really good concrete answer to that. Basically, <laughs> I mean, as anyone who's a Richard Herring fan will know, in Fist of Fun, he went on about how he fancied Julia Sawala and he had a shrine. There's a her, famous was... line where he says, my fantasy woman would have the head of Julia Sawala and the body of Julia Sawala. <laughs> <laughs> yes and then just exactly. just eight short years later he's going out with it <laughs> yeah exactly and so he met her at a script reading for something he'd written which i think may have been a play uh, it was something that never got made but they had a table read and he'd sent it to her years before obviously in the hope <laughs> of like meeting her so presumably he fancies her but he must like her as an actor as well so he met her doing that which was just before time gentlemen please that's the impression i right. got and i think they started going out before that so i guess they cast her on that basis but obviously been trying to cast her in stuff anyway yeah and again there's all these just vague kind of little snippets of conversation little half kind of comments because obviously not dishing the dirt mm -hmm. in their interviews and things but um it does seem like the relationship he had with her over sort of 18 months or whatever was pretty much coincided with the the filming of the first series of time gentlemen please and obviously he was under a great deal of stress at the time anyway in terms of the writing and everything and the tumultuous nature of the relationship apparently was not helping the situation <laughs> julia sawala was described in al murray's words as a lot of work <laughs> and now he was referring to the relationship with with Richard there at the time I think rather than as an actor I'm not sure okay. <laughs> like I say it's all kind of half comments <laughs> that's interesting but yeah definitely a lot of uh, stress going on there and the fact that she's not in the second series is perhaps all you need to know there Julia Sawala was in, she was in Absolutely Fabulous, wasn't she? Oh, yes. Uh, so Julia Sawala has quite a significant uh, sitcom legacy, raised in the acting life. You know, her father was an actor and uh, she went to a stage school and all that mm -hmm. sort of thing. So that's why she started out quite young. Press Gang was the kind of the I first hit. Press that's Gang. obviously where Richard Herring knew her from. Julia Sawala is one of those people just has worked really consistently. A lot of comedy, but can do drama as well, no problem. But as you see in, in Time, Gentlemen, Please, she's a comedy character. Mm -hmm. In Absolutely Fabulous, she's the straight man. You know, she is not That's the true. comedy character. Yeah. She can do she can do it all. But before that, she was in uh, Second Thoughts. Uh, that's the the sitcom with Linda Bellingham and it, it's sequel Faith in the Future. She was the daughter oh, in that. Oh, right. Okay, I recall that, yeah. Then she got the part of Saffron in Absolutely Fabulous and so on and so on, really. More more after that, she's in Chicken Run. She was one of the voices. Yeah. She was like the main woman in that, wasn't she? So Time Gentleman, please... It does feel a bit like she's slumming it slightly. It feels, it feels right. like, you know, yeah. you were absolutely fabulous. You're a bit better than this. But, you know, she was going out with the writer. Maybe that helped. I wonder <laughs> if, you know, you say slumming it. We, we talked earlier about how not a lot of people would have seen this. But yeah. obviously Sky had the money to throw at the Premier League. Do you think these guys would have been well paid for this? 
relatively speaking, yeah, I bet they were. I mean, and, and just because you're in Absolutely Fabulous and it's a hit doesn't mean you get paid a lot. Yeah, well, that's the that's the comparison. Millions more people would have seen her in Abfab, but maybe yeah. maybe Sky One pays better than the BBC, regardless of the audience. Well, certainly, by the way, Richard Herring tells it, this was the most financially successful period of his life these two years, mm. and he bought a house. I've heard him say that. Yeah. yeah. Richard Herring does a lot of free podcast material and whatnot, and obviously he tours. But yeah, I've heard him say that, that this was the most lucrative job of his entire career. But yeah, unfortunately, I haven't really got any concept of what you get paid for this. And and, and, and as a writer, even, but as an actor, maybe not Al Murray, but as an actor, you're going to get a lot less. Just mentioning actors there, the interesting thing I noted, let's say your pub regulars and then a couple of other characters that pop in and out. You've got 11 or 12 kind of regular cast here that are in most episodes. Yeah. Of those, you would say three, maybe four of them, you would say are professional actors, as in they have had consistent work. (laughs) And that that seems unusual. (laughs) No, it's interesting you should say that because obviously we're going to go through these, you know, in sequence. But, But yeah, you're absolutely right. A couple of the main regulars haven't been in anything else. Yeah. We talked about Janet. Let's talk about the other member of staff, Steve, the barman. Yeah. He's a perfect example of this. So just tell me about... Well, well, firstly, we'll talk about the character, because for me, the character is an exact proxy for Richard Herring. So you talked earlier about watching Fist of Fun and This Morning with Richard, Not Judy, and the dynamic that he and Stuart Lee had. So Richard Herring was this sort of young, enthusiastic, puppy dog type character, and Stuart Lee was the world-weary cynic. And Steve is that Richard Herring character. He is exactly... It's like when Woody Allen writes, he gets too old to play Woody (laughs) Allen, so he gets someone else in to do it. That's what Richard Herring's done here. Yeah, and I, I've got no evidence for this whatsoever, but I can only assume Richard Herring, at least at first, was thinking, oh, I'll play that. I'll play that role. Yeah. And then just realised it was going to be too much work with the writing and everything or something like that. I don't know. That's complete speculation. But he does like to act in his own stuff. So yeah. that's realistic. So that's so that the character, you know, he's a bit he's a bit of a non-entity, really. He's a foil for the governor. Mm. Yeah. Tell me about the actor then, because this is how we got into this. Because I don't know him from anything else. Well, that's because he's not been in anything else. Uh, so... <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, name of Jason Freeman. Very little information to be found about him. What I know is at some point he was a stand-up comedian. Right. So that's where they found him. That's obviously where they knew him. More specifically than that, in 1996, Richard Herring wrote a play that he did at the Edinburgh Fringe. He's done that a few times. It was called Punk's Not Dead. And Jason Freeman was in it. He was an actor in that. I don't know if he knew him before that, but that's the first connection I can find between the two of them. The, uh, Richard Herring was also in it and the other three actors who were in it were all appeared in Time Gentleman Please as just like one-off episodes okay that's interesting um, so uh, including Paul Putner who you yeah. will know of course Curious is the Curious Orange, Orange. yeah so <laughs> he turns up in all his work. That's basically all I know about him. Fair He's enough. done no other acting. There doesn't seem to be any evidence of him doing stand-up anymore or anything past. There doesn't seem to be any evidence of him existing beyond sort of 2003. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I can't tell you anymore. You know, it's, it's interesting. I always like it when you hear about footballers from the 80s and 90s who retired and they're now, you know, managing a branch of Nationwide in Chipping Norton or something yeah. like that. I love it when, when they just get completely out of the industry. So maybe, maybe that's yeah. what he's doing. Maybe he's a plumber in Chesterfield or something like that. To be honest, it looks like he stopped acting about a third of the way through the second series, <laughs> judging by what I've seen. Uh, so <laughs> it does feel like he didn't want to be there in the second series, yeah. Let's stay on the subject of uh, actors who don't really, didn't really do much else. What about the prof, <laughs> Andrew Mackay? 
Tell me a bit about him. Yes, Andrew Mackay, I think, is also a comedian, more significantly a stand-up, but another one with very little presence in terms of online stuff. But he did definitely appear in a few sketches in Fist of Fun. Mm. He was in Ra Ra Rasputin, which was a musical that Richard Herring wrote in 1994, I think. He lived with Stuart Lee in the early 90s. All right, I didn't know that. So... He was obviously just a comedian on the circuit. They knew each other. And he's done a little bit of acting, but very little. Mostly playing like a mad professor. (laughs) See, I recognise him as a Leon Herring associate. Yeah, 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 like he would pop up in their sketches. Yeah, he's in This Morning with Richard, not Judy, as a mad professor. He's yeah. got the right look for that, you know. Yeah. So obviously here he plays the prof because he wears glasses. So he's the prof. That's that's the rules. The bloke in the pub wears glasses. But he is also, he's the intellectual in the pub in the academic sense. He does actually know things. Mm-hmm. But then he's also like a sci-fi nerd and, and that sort of thing. And so they take them. And he's, he's not so secretly in love with the gov, isn't he? Kind of. That's one of the elements... Of many, that is just kind of a half-baked idea that never quite goes anywhere. So the running thing with him is that, you know, he's secretly gay, so he makes lots of kind of advances to other people, albeit in a kind of secretive way, furtively, I guess. Then there's the, this, uh, there's also the insinuation that he is a, a flasher, keeps getting mentioned, the, the, the railway station flasher or something yeah. like that, they call it. The obvious implication is that it's him. Also, there's a lot of implications that he murders people and that he's really like a bit of a psychopath. The the other element of his character is that he's got this very overbearing mother, uh, religious uh, upbringing, and so she doesn't approve of him being in the pub. And she turns up a couple of times, uh, played by Edna Dore, who's something of a sitcom classic, because she, she really found a, a, a second wind of her career playing old women sort of when she was in her 80s, yeah. Uh, actually, this, the prof's a good example of something I want to bring up in general, and that is the flanderization of characters. Flanderization. Yeah, does that mean anything to you? It's, Are you talking about the Simpsons? Yeah, it's a common word. It's a common sort of phrase used to denote a certain type of uh, thing that happens in shows, named after Flanders and The Simpsons, in which a character that you know is originally well-rounded or, or serves a, some sort of purpose becomes reduced down to their basic entities that are just the over-the-top caricature elements. Yes. And that happens in the show quite significantly, and the prof is probably the best example of that. Whereas he goes from being the one who actually knows stuff, but he's an alcoholic, so he's sat in the pub all the time, to just all he is in the second series is reference about secretly being gay, reference about killing someone. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. And because you never really focus on him as a character, it never really matters. But he's the the most concrete example of that. Uh, the old man goes through the same sort of journey. It, it's it's really more because in that second series, those ancillary characters are really underserved. It, they're just they, drum, they, drumbeat, aren't they? It's just like uh, like a drum fill. So you know you've got the main characters providing the rhythm, and then you just go over and hit the prof symbol, get his line, yeah. and then you move on. He's not actually adding anything to the drama. Yeah, and I would say in the first series that doesn't happen. And, and like I was just saying in this date with density, they're all sat around talking and they're chipping lines and they're all involved yeah. in the conversation. I think that works a lot better. It's a lot more interesting. You've got more characters to work with. And I appreciate there's going to be the odd episode where that's not a character you really focus on, not going to do much. But that second series really just lets it loose all completely. 
Time, gentlemen, please. That is all we have time for this week, I'm afraid. You'll have to come back next week to hear the end of our discussion on this particular sitcom. And we will be discussing the rest of the cast, of course. We'll be going through the end of the episode. And we'll be talking all about Richard Herring. So do join us again next time. If you'd like to get in touch, then we are on social media at BritcomPod. That's Instagram and Twitter. We've got a Facebook group as well, British Sitcom History Podcast. Oh, you can find us on YouTube, British Sitcom History, where we have extra content as well as the podcast. So do go and check all those out. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>